Welcome to the On The Mark podcast, where I'll help you become more well-rounded financially at the intersection of real estate and personal finance. As an avid real estate investor and 20-year mortgage industry veteran with over $2 billion in fundings, I'll help you learn how to build and protect wealth and pass it on to future generations in a way that's easy for all to understand. Okay, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Mark Myman. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce my friend Mark Salerno from Wealth Edge. Mark, if you don't mind turning on your screen so we can see you. Oh, there you are. Hey. Hello. Pleasure to see you again. <laughs> oh, nice um, so. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So, um, so Mark, why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about about your firm and what you do and how you help clients, and then we'll we'll dive into more real estate specific things in just a minute. Great. Um, well, let me start off by saying we're a New York City based firm. We're on Park Avenue and 40th Street. Uh, primarily, we're involved in what I would refer to as business management and personal financial planning. How do we do that? We do that through a, a strong foundation in tax planning and accounting. Uh, we have a, a relatively uh, large team of uh, CPAs and accountants here. So we're not only helping our business clients uh, manage their books and doing their quarterly, quarterly reconciliations and payrolls, uh, but we're giving them advice on, on planning. Uh, that does bleed through to the personal side. So we're doing fee-based planning uh, for our clients and we have a team, a wealth management team here uh, that does that uh, because I know we're speaking to a lot of uh, CFPs. Uh, we're on the e-money platform and that's proved to be uh, very, very helpful for us in servicing our clients and keeping on top of all the different uh, activities and uh, points of contact that we have with them uh, throughout the year. So in addition to the um, tax planning and accounting and, and financial planning, we have an investment advisory team, both where we're advising as well as doing investments on behalf of clients. So we have a, a CFA uh, running that group for us. And in addition, uh, we uh, really put a lot of focus on uh, professional relationship management. So Mark, you're an example of uh, uh, one of our professional relationships, uh, particularly along the sides of mortgage and, and, and mortgage refinancing, you know, you, you and your team have been very helpful to us and to our clients in particular. You know, this week we're closing uh, or have closed or will be closing over $3 million worth of mortgages. So for that, we uh, do appreciate it. And I can't stress that enough to the practitioners that are out there uh, participating in this call the importance of having uh, these professional relationships, uh, whether it be with uh, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, um, uh, trust and estate attorneys, business attorneys, uh, bankers, uh, not just of the mortgage variety, but uh, from a lending standpoint. So these are all important parts of our uh, business management and, and, and wealth management uh, uh, services. Yeah, well, that's great. Why don't, why don't we touch on that a little bit more? Because one of the things that we've talked about in prior sessions with real estate agents, and it was a little bit different angle, but I think it's relevant here, is building your team. So real estate isn't done with just, you know, by yourself, right? Or at least it shouldn't be if, you, if you're getting proper advice. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have a whole series with all these different professionals that represent different aspects of it. But um, and I think it's relevant to what you just said, even though you're talking about more of a financial team. But there are aspects of this where, for example, an estate attorney might want to weigh in on what you're doing with your investor real estate because it might be something that you pass down to future generations. So maybe you can talk just a little bit about because um, you've talked about the importance of it. But for you in particular and your firm, how have you built those relationships over time? Because I think that's something that that people can probably do you know, more of. Sure. Well, uh, just as an example, you and your team, we met you at one of the CFP uh, uh, presentations. I think it was the spring of 2018 when we did our annual meeting. You were there as one of the vendors and uh, we had started talking with you and wanted to give you a shot at some of the business that we do refer out. You know, um, you know there's so many people involved in this business. I wanna put their hand in other people's pockets. I'm just happy to get good quality work done and open communication. 
I understand the complexities of these things. All of our, all of our clients, and I'm speaking generally for the CFP community, all of our clients uh, think that things happen with a stroke of a button on your, uh, on your computer, uh, but that's not the case. There's a lot of hiccups along the way, uh, like from a communication standpoint, uh, you know, we want to get back to our clients, you know, within 24 hours uh, on, on whether it's a voicemail or an email. And sometimes that's just to acknowledge the fact that we got it and it's going to take us a little while to get back to them. But uh, we find it very important with the professionals that we work with that they keep these lines of communication open. Sometimes even if there's nothing to report, I just want to hear that there's nothing to report. It's just status quo and it's going to take us a little longer to get an answer at least then I can have an open dialogue with the client to say, hey, you know, they're working on it. They know, you know, they haven't forgotten about us. Uh, so we're looking um, through our professional relationships or organizations like the CFP board. Uh, we attend the um, AICPA conference as well, and we've uh, made some relationships there. But really we find that uh, when we're working with clients, uh, we prefer to work with their advisors that they already have. So uh, that's how we've picked up relationships as well, because people are either going to be responsive and that's what we're looking for or not. So if they can be responsive and do professional work, uh, we're looking to add them to our um, pool of uh, professional contacts. What I found over the years is, you know, uh, I'm approaching my 60s. Uh, most of my clients are give or take 10 years, but I do have older clients and uh, a lot of times uh, they wanna do things face-to-face uh, -face with people. So geographic location becomes important, understanding uh, how they want to get things done. Uh, you may recall the client down in Florida who only wanted to be dealt with, with um, uh, didn't wanna do any e-signatures, wanted you to send him everything, wanted it uh, to be highlighted where he needed to sign and he would call with questions. When you try to send him anything by email, just assume that he never gets it. So it's these type of things in working with other professionals that by understanding the client and helping the other professional understand how they like to be communicated with and what's going to work, uh, that's what we find best. Perfect. Yeah, we've I've had a similar experience where you kind of you try and sometimes you fail with certain um, referral partners and over time you learn and you really build like a solid, solid network over time. So I've had a similar experience to you. Um, so thanks for sharing. And it's, it's sort of uh, apropos that you and I met through the financial planning association and they're, they've been great at helping us promote this event. I know a good amount of the attendees are here um, because of that group and, and um, just want to mention them because I do appreciate them providing this platform and helping us promote it. So, um, so one thing I want to definitely cover is we find that a lot of people who buy real estate, especially for people who are maybe buying initially as a primary residence, but then even as investors, what we see often is that people will, especially like young couples in particular, they will save and save and save um, as they're getting started in their careers. And then they'll buy a home and they'll have nothing else to show for it as far as like retirement funds or other investments. And I think um, what I would love to hear from you is just generally speaking, what financial aspects do you recommend that people have in order before they look at buying real estate? Because we want to make sure that people understand real estate is one type of investment. It's not the only one, but yeah. what other aspects would you recommend somebody would have in order? Well, whether, we're, whether we're involved in an actual financial planning engagement with someone or they're just coming to us with that question, it really does start with the basics, right? If, if you're going to make an illiquid investment that you're going to hold on to for many, many years, you better have the foundation in place. And, and what comprises a good foundation for someone? Having an emergency fund. Uh, I think the pandemic has really highlighted the importance of having capital and whether that's an individual or whether that's a business. You know, so often our business owners are coming to us, uh, you know, focused on the P&L, the, the profit and loss statement, as opposed to focus on the balance sheet. Well, when you go through an environment that we've all gone through over this uh, last uh, 14 months, uh, look what's happened to many businesses, you know, retail businesses, restaurants, uh, their cash flow, right? Where are they gonna get the money to, uh, to meet their expenses when uh, revenue is down? 
the same could be said for a um, an investor in real estate that's starting out and and and, and doesn't have a lot of liquidity. So. Before I would be uh, recommending an investment in real estate, I'd want to see uh, the client have sufficient reserves, not only for their personal needs. And again, every practitioner might treat this a little bit differently, Mark, but uh, whether that's uh, three months, six months, many of our clients, we have over a year's worth of cash available to them. We understand that there is an opportunity cost associated with that, but there's also the advantage of being able to sleep at night and not worrying about point in time risk of where they're gonna get their cash flow for the next year if they are a retiree. Perhaps we can hold less uh, if um, that individual is employed and making a good income and earning. So it's it's having um, adequate um, emergency funds in place, both from a business and a personal standpoint. Why would you buy real estate if you don't have a will in place, right? So let's do the basics. Let's get a will in place, a healthcare proxy, a power of attorney, a living will. And again, if the client doesn't want to do it, that's fine. But to not try to address that prior to making a long-term investment in real estate doesn't make sense. The same could be said for life or disability. I'll focus on the disability insurance first. You're a young investor, right? What do you do in an environment like this if um, all of a sudden your tenant's out of work? He owned a restaurant. The restaurant's not making money. He was paying you rent. He or she was paying you rent. And now they say, hey, you know, I've been a good tenant, but I just can't afford to pay you. Well, then you better make sure you have the reserves. Uh, let's presume you have the reserves or you have the savings because of your employment that you can pile more money back in to support that mortgage, the maintenance, any upkeep that might be required on the, on the real estate. But now you lose your job and you've eaten through your personal uh, reserves and now you're eating through the reserves and emergency fund that you have for the, 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 uh, the, the investment real estate. Well, if you're disabled, that might cover you for the first six months or 90 days. Uh, maybe it'll even cover you for a year, but now what are you gonna do? You're gonna see your financial house fall apart. There's really only three choices when you get hit with a cash flow crunch. It's eat into your assets, Go into debt. Now, it's not so easy going into more debt other than credit card debt uh, if you can't qualify for a mortgage or a mortgage refinance or adjust your lifestyle. So when I give a client a choice, do you want to adjust your lifestyle, you want to uh, go into debt or you want to eat your assets? I don't like any of those choices. So having the proper uh, disability in place makes sense. But now what if that individual from that same disability died, right? Does his partner, his spouse want to be involved in that business? Yes or no. Uh, do they have the wherewithal to handle it from an administrative uh, standpoint? Yes or no. Uh, is there adequate life insurance in force so that they can replace the income that the decedent lost or, um, or perhaps even sell out of that property because they know they don't have the ability to manage it? but they can carry it for extra months because they had the right amount of term insurance in place. Um, so those are things to look at. Also, you know, and I didn't mention this in the intro about the professional relationships, we have uh, third parties looking at uh, the property and casualty coverage of our clients. And whether that's on, from a personal standpoint or whether that's from a, a business standpoint, so such that, uh, um, and again, we've got practitioners in this audience, what's the hurricane deductible on the property? And will uh, the client be able to afford that if uh, Sandy comes through and rips the roof off and causes all kinds of internal damage uh, to the property? So, uh, you know, working in conjunction with either with their um, property and casualty agent or introducing them to one in our professional network, uh, we would address those things. Again, it's up to the client to make these decisions, but it's up to us to bring them our concerns uh, but also show them the opportunities. So it's it's all of these basic, you know, what I would call uh, tackling and blocking, to use an analogy with uh, football, all these basic things that need to be done properly, because if not done properly in the right circumstances roll up, it's going to put your clients in a very awkward position and something that they thought they would make money over the in the long term becomes a headache. Also, I would think before going into any kind of um, agreement, making sure you have a good real estate attorney on hand uh, to look over or to draft any uh, 
lease uh, 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 paperwork that needs to be done with the tenant, uh, doing credit checks on the tenant. Uh, these are all important issues. So th these are all things that should be done prior to. And again, you know, we even have professional relationships in the construction business because we're helping our elderly clients often, not oftentimes, but sometimes doing retrofits on their homes uh, to accommodate uh, areas of concern from the standpoints of the ability to do activities of daily living on a safe basis. So, you know, oftentimes people look at projects and say, oh, gee, you know, part of what I'm going to have to finance or to fund is uh, renovations on this investment property. I'd be pretty darn sure that you've got an accurate assessment of what it's going to cost you before you get into something that you're going to be in for a long period of time. And that has high relative transaction costs involved if you want to get out. So th those are some of the basic things. I'm sure I'm missing some, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd really think long and hard on behalf of the client before they just, you know, you can you can make a little bit of money on a real estate and think you're a real estate investor, but realize you're competing with professionals that are doing this every day. So you better have your ducks in order. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the part you mentioned about cash is particularly important because the pandemic has taught all of us to plan for the un, unexpected. And we've seen, you know, local laws be very uh, tenant friendly as far mm -hmm. as not forcing tenants to pay. Um, there has been not so much as far as uh, legal benefits for the landlords who also have bills to pay as well. It's been very tenant focused, at least from what I've seen, um, as far as allowing, you know, people to defer rent or, or just not pay it at all. And there's nothing really that the landlord can do. So that the pandemic has really taught us that. Um, and I think another important thing that you mentioned is that with real estate, you have to be prepared for things that you can't really predict, not just with pandemic and cash flow, but um, problems with the property. You know, I've I've had a lot of, you know, knocks on the chin with my own real estate. I still don't regret doing any of it. Um, still, you know, long term, I think really going to pay off for me in my own side hustle of real estate. But having extra cash on hand for each investment to make sure that during leaner times you're able to accommodate and and to be honest, even just personally keeping extra cash on hand, maybe not um, specifically tied to those properties, has been really important. I mean, I've I've been sued over a property line that I inherited from a prior owner six months after I bought a property. I'm defending a lawsuit to cost me fifteen thousand dollars unexpectedly on just the two two foot stretch of the property line. Um, I've had a roof blow off, like you mentioned, it wasn't a hurricane, but it was just a really windy day. <laughs> so I had an insurance, uh, you know, a, an insurance deductible that I had to pay, which was, I don't know, five or $10,000. There's, you know, water problems, that, you know, a uh, water heater blew and water was going all over the place and, you know, couldn't fix it for a day and it caused some problems. So there's always things that will come up. And I think having cash on hand is so, so critical specifically for investors. I think it's also critical for owner occupants, but even more so for when you're doing this as an investment, um, it's really important to have that extra cash on hand. Um, so as far as diversification, because real estate is really one type of investment. There are a lot of others out there. Um, but why, why is it that diversification is so important so that you don't put all of your eggs in a real estate basket? Because we do, I see a lot of people doing that because real estate is, it's sexy, it's interesting, it's fun. People love to look at listings and dream of living in a place or renting it out or whatever. But um, sometimes the, that professional network will bring people back to earth and, and explain to them why it's so important to have other investments as well. But I want to get your take on that as well. Yeah, well, you know, we're advocates of multi-asset class portfolios. So again, it's stocks, it's bonds, it's cash, it's alternative investments. I would put real estate, investment real estate in the alternative investment category. It might comprise anywhere, that alternative investment category might comprise anywhere between five and 20%. Uh, again, for all the same uh, concerns that I mentioned earlier, having too much money there in real estate as a percentage of your overall in investment portfolio can be problematic. I had a client and it wasn't over-investment, but it was a, a large sum. He was disabled. He was collecting a very sizable $24,000 a month income tax-free between social security, uh, his um, Goldman Sachs uh, long-term disability, 
and his individual disability. He had lent a, um, a restaurant owner uh, uh, over a million dollars against a, a restaurant that he owned. And uh, he was getting a hefty 10% rate of return, but the liquidity dried up. The man wasn't able to uh, pay back the loan in time. Uh, he was, the client was happy to extend that. Uh, but again, fortunately for him, uh, and he was disabled before he made this investment, but if for whatever reason, the insurance companies came back and challenged that disability, uh, and he wasn't getting $24,000 a year and needed the, uh, the principal, not just the interest on a million, but the, the principal on a million to meet his needs, uh, he wouldn't have had it. So uh, by being diversified into other asset classes, uh, you know, there's, you know, where, where it could take months to sell and, and provide liquidity out of a, um, an investment piece of real estate. Uh, we could sell your, uh, uh, we could liquidate your cash and get it to you today. I can wire transfer it to you, right? If we're, if we're selling uh, uh, stocks and bonds, the day after they clear or the day they clear, we can move the money to you. So there's a big difference in the terms of liquidity for investment real estate and uh, marketable securities. So we'd be an advocate of, 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 again, having the right cash on hand, having other investments uh, to prepare for it. You know, when you look at uh, long-term rates of return, not over short periods of time, but where we would expect um, long-term rates of return on real estate to be, you know, mid to double digits, uh, you could expect over the long term for stocks to outperform that. So, uh, but not over the short term. You generally are going to see a lot less volatility in the real estate market in the short term uh, than you are going to see with uh, stocks and to a lesser degree bonds. So, uh, again, knowing, knowing the client's situation, knowing their current cash flow needs, and anticipating future needs under any scenario helps the advisor position a portfolio properly to address all, all potential outcomes. I'm sorry, Mark, are you still on mute? Yeah, I was, okay. sorry. <laughs> See your lips um, uh, this is my first, uh, my first series, so uh, we're learning on the fly here. Okay. Rookie mistake. Um, but we all make it right. I actually saw somebody hold up a mug during a zoom session that actually had printed on it said, you're on, you're muted. <laughs> pretty, pretty handy tool. I got to get one of those. I'm on zoom. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, but you touched on something that's interesting as far as the long-term nature of real estate and what, you know, unless you're in the process of like in the, in the game of flipping properties, which is high risk potentially high return, but also could, you could end up flat on your, on your back. Um, but just looking at real estate from a longer term play and looking at, you know, what, one of the reasons that I'm inspired by real estate is because of what my grandfather did, you know, probably he bought a couple of properties probably 75 years ago that are still in the family. He passed away 30 years ago, but it's still creating a legacy for him, you know, in helping my extended family, you know, support themselves to a certain degree. Um, but I think it's also important to, that you kind of have to plan for that. I don't think he necessarily planned that to be the case, but it, but real estate can be a really great long-term play as far as providing, um, you know, income into retirement and uh, and things like that. So I want to get your take on real estate almost as an alternative um, or additional means of providing cash flow during retirement age, and then also succession planning for transferring that real estate. And again, why that's so important to have trust and the state attorneys involved in your overall team um, is to help plan for those things. So maybe let's talk about the the really yeah. long term play here with real estate. Well, you know, it's it, it's a it's a great investment, and it's an inflation protected in a way, right? Because uh, you're going to have tenants, and the tenants are going to expect to have to pay more. Uh, where we're where we don't advocate any consumer debt, right? There's times when it's necessary, but uh, I said this in the last uh, program. It's the uh, anchor around your neck that you drag through life. I mean, it's, re it's usury, the, uh, the fees and, and the interest rates that are charged by these uh, banks. Um, but that being said, with real estate, it's a collateralized loan. We're, we're darn near, and you can speak to this, Mark, but we're darn near the 
lows in interest rates, uh, I would expect an investor today to be able to make uh, a, a healthy profit over the cost of uh, borrowing by going into debt to finance a, uh, an investment piece of property. So I think it can play a role because over time, uh, you'll be paying down the mortgage. Uh, in the meantime, your cash flow will be going up. You know, depending upon your tax situation, there's there's uh, tax credits available. Again, it's a it's it's a very dependable, you know, uh, source of income for a retiree, and um, it's a diversification away from uh, the cash flow that they would get off of their uh, stocks or off of their bonds. So uh, we feel it could be a very good um, uh, complement to uh, marketable securities within a, a, a client's uh, portfolio. Yeah, complement is, is the key there because it probably shouldn't be the only plan you have for retirement. I have seen people do that, some of which successfully, but you know, it's, it, the diversification is, is definitely important. One thing that I don't, I don't think gets a lot of attention is also the aspect of inflation as it relates to real estate. So if you look at what, if you take out, let's say a 30 year fixed mortgage, and let's say it's now you're right, interest rates are near the lowest that they have ever been. Um, and let's say you take out a 30 year fixed mortgage today, right? And it costs you $3,000 a month, for example, that payment stays fixed no matter what happens with inflation over the entire 30 year duration of the loan. But one thing that I love about real estate is that inflation doesn't necessarily affect your expenses. Maybe it'll affect your, the cost of your insurance or, or the taxes to a certain degree, depending on where you live. There's different tax uh, situations in different states where the taxes may stay the same or they may go up over time. Um, but inflation is a really powerful tool because it's not a tool, but an aspect of real estate, because if you look at that same property, you know, 15 years ago, that is now collecting, let's say, $2,000 a month in rent, they were probably only collecting $1,000 a month of rent at that time, or maybe less, who knows. Um, so the nice thing about real estate is that if you set in your mortgage early on, and you hold that real estate for a long time, in all likelihood, not only will the rents go up, but the property value will likely go up in a meaningful way over a long period of time as well. Historically speaking, obviously, there's going to be ups and downs. But maybe you can talk a little bit about the inflationary side of this to where you're actually benefiting from fixing in your expense, your major expense, which is usually the mortgage. Um, but you're, you know, you're growing that asset and you're potentially collecting more and more rent over time just because of inflation. Just things yeah. get more expensive over time. I don't know that I can add anything to that, Mark. I think you did a good job of summarizing it, right? Uh, you know, the, okay. dollars that you're gonna be, the dollars that you're gonna use to repay that loan 15 years down the road, right? If it's a, a, a 5% inflation over 15 years, uh, you're gonna be the equivalent of uh, paying that mortgage at uh, half the outlay, right? So uh, that's good, but in the meantime, that's the that's one of the larger expense items uh, in in the PL on the real estate. The um, the revenue though is going to go up. So depending upon what you've done in terms of um, improvements, the tenant, uh, that's going to be positive. So there's going to over time the inflation adjusted spread between your revenue and your expenses should widen, making it more profitable for you the longer you hold it. And it gives you a lot more right. flexibility when you get to retirement in terms of what to do with that property, whether you want to sell it, whether you want to uh, uh, finance it, whether you want to move into it, you know, there's choices. And uh, having a client in a position that they have choices is a good thing. And that's why, again, stressing the, uh, the multi-asset class portfolio, because uh, you just look back, uh, you can say, well, gee, this has been a good year for real estate. Right. A lot of people, a lot of clients moved to the suburbs. Right. So pricing went up in the suburbs, but for a short period of time, pricing took a hit in the city. So, you know, that's why I think over the short term, you have to be adequately financed and prepared over the long term. I think uh, clients will benefit from invest investment real estate. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm definitely a longer term prospect for real estate. It, it just makes more sense to me that 
if you hold this property long enough, again, your rents will hopefully increase over time. The value of the property will increase. You also have the control over any renovations that you want to do to improve the property, which can also affect the value. It's a little bit different than when you're investing in stocks or bonds, where let's take stocks for an example. Um, you can't directly, unless you own a very large share company, you can't directly impact their performance, right? You you can do your research and hope that the company does well and that the market takes well to it and that the stock value goes up, but you don't necessarily have direct control over that like you might with real estate where you can, you know, put money into it. And, and you know, I, I've yet to find anyone that I've spoken to who owns a property still that they bought 20 years ago that doesn't say, oh my God, I can't believe how much more it's worth now and that they don't, you know, that they don't regret keeping it long term. So I think the long term nature of real estate is where the real value is. If you can just ride out the bumps in between, and there definitely are plenty of them along the way that you want to be prepared for and diversified for, and make sure you have the cash for. But the long game, in my opinion, is where you really win in real estate. There are people that are very successful with flipping. For me, that's not the angle. I don't have the time. Like that's a huge time commitment for people to be going through massive renovations and and whatnot. But the long game is where I think people can really benefit. And and also to a certain degree, not always because the pandemic has taught us otherwise, but you can mitigate risk by just holding it. If you just sit on it long enough, eventually your, your tenants will pay off your mortgage for you over a long period of time. But that's, that's my personal take. I'm not a flipper, even though I've done a couple of flips. Um, it's more of a long game for me. Right. I, I think, you know, after our last uh, conversation, Mark, thinking about uh, this as a side hustle, you know, I think as uh, CFP professionals and, and other professionals that might be on this call, as well as investors, you really have to go into these things with your eyes wide open. I mean, it can be great. And it can be a nightmare. I mean, you could be getting a call at two o'clock in the morning. My toilet's backed up. You better have a plan in place to deal with it, right? So, um, or a property manager. Yeah, even or better. a property manager. I'm a big proponent uh, of that. That's all, all, all yeah. part of having the right professional network. So, if there's one thing that I could get across to the viewers today, it's really doing your homework up front on, on it and making sure you have a good team. And that team should be spoken to prior to entering into any transactions. You know, we both mentioned, uh, you know, things that can go wrong. There's a lot that can go right. And that's what people see. You know, they hear the stories from others. But along the way, there's been a lot of struggles. The better the investor can understand those struggles and have a plan in place or professionals in place to help them deal with it the more satisfied they're going to be about the investment they make. Absolutely. And, and I think um, television has played into that um, because you used to have these TV shows. They're not so much on the, on TV anymore, but the house, the HTV shows about, you know, flip flipping houses, which showed people that have never done it before, who basically quit their day job, um, bought a condo and went in there with a jackhammer or a, or a sledgehammer on their own and started knocking out walls and putting in cabinets and, and it made it appear so easy. But there were so many aspects of that that they didn't discuss on those shows like financing. These people didn't have enough cash to buy these places out of mortgage. So what financing were they getting? Were they getting construction financing to do the work? Um, you know, and they, they oversimplified it. So I think it kind of glorified real estate to a certain degree. Real estate can be a grind in some cases. And, and I think TV has oversimplified that a little bit, not to bash on TV, because I used to love those shows myself, to be honest. But you can, if, you, if you're a professional in the world, you can kind of see what they're not talking about. I, I watch them too. And I'll just uh, share a story. I, I recently uh, did a renovation on my kitchen. And uh, the, uh, the framing work uh, was held up for about three weeks because the um, uh, inspector said he couldn't get back. And all it was was putting in a couple of pieces of blocking. And uh, all of a sudden, it cost me three weeks. Now, I lived in the home while it was going on. Uh, I had another kitchen to use along the way, but that time costs money. And then if you lose your subcontractors along the way because they were planning on things being done and not done, again, it comes back to being properly financed that you can handle those extra loan payments while no one's paying you uh, while that work's being done. Things to think about. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's why for me personally, I'm not in the flip game. It's, it's higher risk and you have those expenses that you can't necessarily predict and delays are very common. So one of the sessions that we've done was with, with real estate agents who are also investors themselves. And they always say like, we have three models. We have the best case scenario, the, the likely scenario and the worst case scenario. We base all of our decisions early on before we sometimes even go see the property on the worst case scenario. And if it still looks good, then they know it's the right type of investment. So I think finding the right property and the right investment requires a lot of upfront work to make sure that you're doing that properly. So I want to shift the conversation to down payment. So a lot of clients wonder, you know, if they have, let's say they have significant excess cash that they could put a down payment on or use for a down payment. How do you decide how much to put down? And I think leverage is an important factor here, but um, from a tax perspective and, and also from a cash flow perspective. But let's say a client comes to you and they say, I have a million dollars I can figure out what I want to do with. Um, and I'm buying a million dollar property. How much, like, how would you go about recommending what down payment would be appropriate? Assuming, let's just say the lender requires 30% down, just as an example. That in, that individual is in an enviable position that they have the cash that uh, they could yeah. spring into <laughs> an investment piece. But that being said, Mark, in all seriousness, uh, have they addressed all of those items that uh, I brought up as concerns initially, right? Because if they have a million dollars- Let's assume, yeah. They could have a yeah. will in place, right? They could have some term insurance in place. They could have the right property and casualty insurance in place. All right, so let's assume that that was all done. Look at where interest rates are right now. Why would you wanna put money into a piece of real estate when you could have that money sitting on the side? Think of those unfortunate folks that had investment real estate that was 100% paid off when Sandy hit, right? Now they need cash to do renovations, to bring that place back up to snuff from where it was before it hit. Where are they getting the cash? You tell me, you're a lender, right? Are you gonna lend against a property that's uninhabitable? Probably nope. not. Okay, so- Not without a construction loan, no. Right, so uh, having those liquid resources available makes sense. And when you look at the app, you know, and again, this is where I bring in the accounting team, you look at the, after tax cost of the mortgage versus what they could be doing in a multi-asset class portfolio with a moderate objective, they're gonna be ahead of the game, financially speaking. Yeah. And if, if there was a reason, which I really can't think of that they'd wanna pay off the loan, they can take the liquidity out of the investments and use it to pay down the loan. But granted, they're gonna have some risk on the investments, but they also have some risk on the resale value of the, of the uh, real estate. So I, I wouldn't be right. overfunding it, but I, I would be looking to get them under um, the level where uh, primary mortgage insurance would be uh, required. So right. I'm, I'm not a big yeah, and that typically doesn't even now. it's tying up that cash. Yeah, you're right. It ties up the cash. It does sort of tie your hands as far as being able to absorb some of those bumps that are common with with investment real estate. Um, but I think the important thing that you said there, uh, or one of the important things is just the power of leverage. To be able to borrow money at let's say three or 4%, because interest rates are a little higher for investment properties than they are for a primary mortgage. Um, so let's say you're even you know, borrowing at 4%, you're, the interest that you pay on that is tax deductible against the income. So when you factor in those tax benefits, it's probably a net of maybe closer to 3%, let's just say, to keep it simple. Uh, but if you can invest that money over time at, you know, let's say 5% or, or whatever it is over, you know, over a longer period of time with the, with the type of portfolio that you mentioned, you're actually gaining net worth because you're borrowing money, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's a way to be able to put both the asset side of your uh, balance sheet to work for you, right? Because you're investing mm -hmm. that money that you leave left over, but you're also using debt as a means of gaining income. I almost look at it as like playing with the house's money, right? If you're if you're at a casino, which don't please don't take this as advice to go to the casino, <laughs> but if you're if if the casino is giving you money 
to play with and you're playing with it and you know you're going to win over time, which is why I tell you not to go to the casino because you likely won't. But um, you're you're using their money to be able to benefit yourself financially over time. And I think that's a really powerful thing, especially as you compound that over time. So I want to share this analysis that you and I did before the call, uh, because I think it's very relevant to put this into context. Um, and so just for the audience to say to explain what what Mark and I did is we compared if you have a, you know, assume mortgage rate of 4%, right, because interest rates are a little bit higher on investment properties. So let's just assume 4% and that you do a compounding interest um, gain on your investments of 5% over time. Compounding mean, for those of you who don't understand that concept, is that the money gets reinvested every month or every year or whatever it is. So you're, you're gaining on your gains over time. And we did an analysis both at a financing um, 500000 as well as $2 million. And this applies to those real estate agents who are on the call today who see clients come in and want to buy properties in cash, whether it be primary residences or investment properties, whatever it may be, they're not using leverage as part of their overall approach. And I've seen it on my end where people turn a nose up to us in the lending industry where say, well, I'm, you know, I'm an all cash buyer. And uh, they wear it almost as a badge of honor, which, you know, is somewhat understandable, I guess, because they have gotten to a certain place financially in their world. But we looked at how much it actually cost them over time. And those people that think they're making the greatest decision ever are actually probably making one of the dumbest decisions they can possibly make, not to call them dumb, but we wanted to highlight some of these numbers for the audience so that they can see what, what it actually turns into over time. So if we're looking at half a million dollar loan, let's use a, you know, uh, somebody in that example that we gave, maybe they're buying a million dollar property, they could either buy in cash or they could finance half of it, let's just say. So we looked at it over 10, 20 and 30 years and over 10 years, the difference between if you were to leverage that money, the half a million dollars, and, and keep half a million dollars invested over time, the client would gain over the first 10 years $134,000 in extra income or revenue from the investments, um, less what, they're, what it costs them to borrow. So that's already factoring in the amount that it costs in interest over that period of time. When you when you do that over 20 years, you're compounding over 20 years and you're taking the mortgage payments and interest over 10, over 20 years, that half a million dollars has now doubled itself. You now have a net gain beyond covering your, your interest expense of $518,000. Put that over 30 years, you're talking about $1.9 million just because you took leverage rather than taking money out of investments. And when you look at that on, let's say, a $2 million purchase, which hopefully no investor is buying a property for $2 million in cash, unless they're doing a 1031 exchange and can't qualify for financing, let's just say it is someone who could get a mortgage if they choose to, those same numbers using 4% assumed mortgage rate and a 5% rate of return on compounding investments over the first 10 years, net gain of $530,000. You look at over 20 years, it's a net gain of $2.1 million. If you look at it over 30 years, it's $8 million. Like it, the value the, the um, value you add by compounding interest over time compared to interest that actually over the course of the loan goes down because you're paying your mortgage balance down to the interest that is part of your monthly payment is actually less and less and less, which is why you see these numbers go up over time where it's, you know, you compare 10, 20 and 30 years, the net gain over the longer period of time is so much greater than the first 10 years. That's why. Um, but it's such, those numbers are very compelling. I mean, so you get a buyer who walks into a property and again, there are a lot of real estate agents on this call who wants to buy a property for $2 million all cash over. You can tell them over the next 30 years, if you keep this property that long, which a lot of people don't, but let's just say they did, you would actually quadruple that money by investing it um, a, a, instead of in putting it in all cash. So I think that's a really, th those are really compelling numbers that we put together, Mark, and we'd love to get your comments on that as well. Well, you know, um, that that's just the case over the long term. And, you know, when you think about it from the investor standpoint, 
uh, and just looking back at the market over the last year or a multi-asset class portfolio that uh, was up substantially. Well, it's up substantially on a, um, uh, on a calendar year basis, but during time periods throughout the year, particularly when COVID just hit, most at multi-asset class portfolios that would have an expected rate of return of 5% were, were down over the first quarter. So what I would say to the real estate investor is let's let put some of the money into a multi-asset class portfolio. And if there's a, a personal concern about wanting to keep debt outstanding, and again, after the consultation with your, your tax advisor, if you want to segregate money out at one point to be able to pay that uh, loan down at any time, regardless of where the market is, you could look at exit points along the way and take some money out of the investments. And that ties into a, a little, a couple of the questions that we have, Mark, that I see up that I'll just address in the last couple of minutes. Uh, Low sure. was asking yeah. about the ability uh, and much easier to enter a game with a 20% down on a mortgage versus 100% down on a stock investment. That's true, but um, uh, it is easier. But you're going to want to. You, you don't have to put 100% of your liquidity into the stock market or a multi-asset class portfolio either. But when you do put the 20% into the mortgage, it's tied up, right? So we don't want to tie up too much, particularly if all those other concerns aren't addressed. And, and uh, another uh, individual asked about um, um, converting a retirement account to be able to purchase real estate. How does that work and what costs are associated with it? I think most of the professionals out there will know that if you're younger than 59 and a half, with the exception of some exceptions, uh, you're going to pay uh, or it's going to be accountable for as ordinary income taxes and a penalty. So for generally speaking, people that are making real estate investments uh, that have that kind of money are in higher tax brackets. When you add the uh, income taxation and the penalties, you could be close to 50%. So Jennifer, if you're taking you know, um, $200,000 out of your uh, retirement account, by the time you finish with the transaction cost, you might be down to $100,000. That's a big, uh, that's a big uh, deficit to, to make up for. Uh, I don't think I'd be advocating that, um, but I, I might suggest that uh, rather than funding your 401k, you may wanna use that money, pay the taxes up front on the smaller portion to build up the nest egg necessary to move into real estate. Yeah, and, and I can add to that as well, Mark, because I know that there are um, there are real estate investment vehicles where you can do like, for example, a self-directed IRA where you can actually purchase real estate within your IRA. Um, there are some challenges with that. And, and I've heard that they recently came out with some things with where you can do it in a 401k as well. Um, there are some restrictions on that. Basically, whatever gains you get have to go directly back into the IRA. Um, so you can't take the benefit yourself. So it's basically like running a business through your IRA. Um, so any expenses or benefits have to be paid uh, through the IRA, which creates some complications. Financing those is also very difficult. There are, I think, only maybe one or two lenders out there in the country. We're not one of them that does that type of financing. Um, and the rates are definitely high. The, the reason that lenders don't like to do that is because the IRA has to own the real estate. It's not you individually. It has to be the IRA entity. So it's not a real human being. Very difficult to um, foreclose for an IRA as opposed to a person. Right. So so financing those are very difficult, um, but there are vehicles out there. And I have seen some people that have dabbled in that, including some of the panelists that we had on the real estate agent uh, panel um, a, a week or so ago. Um, and so, Jennifer, nice to see you, by the way. Um, but if you want more information about that, I can definitely get you in touch with some people that have done it. And um, and they've actually passed along just from my own knowledge, because I'm learning on the fly, too, like everyone else. Um, I now have some names of some of those lenders that do that type of financing, but it's very limited from what I understand. The rates are definitely higher, um, but it is a potential option to kind of invest through your IRA or potentially 401k in real estate in particular. 
Um, but again, you know, you want to make sure that that portfolio is also diversified as well and that you're not using all of your IRA money and putting that into real estate because that that is dangerous because as you're getting older, you're going to need, you know, you stop working, you need that IRA money to be coming in. And if your real estate isn't producing, that that's a scary endeavor when you stop working um, and you don't have inflow of cash. So it, it can be risky. Definitely don't want to use your whole portfolio for that, I would assume. Not to put words in your mouth, Mark, but I can pretty much assume that's what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sounds good. So I think we're just about out of time here. So I just wanted to say thank you so much, Mark. Um, you've provided amazingly valuable insight into how to make sure that people are prepared for this type of investment. It's not for the faint of heart and it's not for people that um, get overly emotional about real estate. I think it's really important to make sure you have that team. That's a consistent theme we have had through pretty much every session that we've had. And the reason that we're having different professionals join the session from you know, all aspects of real estate, that was really the purpose is to show people this is not just a, an emotional decision you want to make because you see a property that looks really cool. Um, that's where you can get yourself into trouble with real estate um, is on the emotional side. And when you're doing it for investment purposes, it's really about the numbers. You don't have to buy in the neighborhood that you want to live in. You don't have to buy in the city that you want to live in. We talked about that in another session about, you know, potentially investing in other cities that may be either less expensive or have higher rates of return or whatever it may be. You don't have to buy in your own neighborhood. And just exploring all these things of how you can create the team around you is so, so valuable. So, uh, and Mark, you've been a great um, proponent of that. And, and also, you know, one of the team, one of the people in my own network that I feel very much comfortable um, relying on for that type of advice and making sure that people make the right financial decisions and don't jump into this when they're not ready. And all those things you mentioned really very, very helpful um, in, in giving people context as to when their clients or, or them individually may be ready to do this and not, not go into it with blinders on. So I really, really appreciate your time and, and expertise and, um, and look forward to continuing to collaborate together. So thank you so much for joining us. Sure. You're welcome. Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to reshare my screen here just to talk about a couple more logistics. Um, so we have these additional sessions coming up, as you know, next Wednesday, same time, same place. Again, for any of you who are having any difficulty with the links, please um, email us at mmteam at freedommortgage.com. We'll get you the website where you can uh, view all of those sessions. I think I actually put it in the chat. So if you want to check that before you log off, by all means, do that. You can get links to the prior sessions if you want to share them with anyone who may be interested in that particular topic. Um, any clients who want to join us for the additional sessions and check out the prior sessions will be able to do that as well. Um, so please definitely check that out. Um, these are the sessions we have coming up over the next four weeks. Um, again, thank you to Mark Salerno for joining me today. Um, all of his contact information is here. If you have any questions, I'm sure I can put words in your mouth, Mark, which I'm getting very good at. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would love to speak with you if you have questions or if you have clients who you would like to get this type of analysis done for to make sure that they're ready. And, and I think as professionals, we all have that responsibility to not push people into it for our own benefit, obviously, and that's not what we're all here to do. Um, but I think Mark can be a great resource for you and your clients and, and, um, and anyone that you know who's looking to make sure that this is the right move for them. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the On The Mark podcast. Wherever you're listening, please leave a review. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with others. You can also follow us on our social accounts and find us at markmyman.com to connect directly. Be sure to take a look at the show notes for all the important links and I'll see you next time.